The Book Thingo podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and reader expectations. This is episode 42, featuring Fiona Lowe at the Australian Romance Readers' Convention in Melbourne. Book Thingo would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Aboriginal Australians to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the book. Podcast talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo Podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thingo Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from BookThingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. My guest for this episode is an Australian author who has achieved something really quite monumental. Fiona Lowe won both the Rita and the Ruby in the same year for her single title contemporary romance, Boomerang Bride. She writes for the Mills and Boone Medical Line, but has branched out to single title contemporary romance and now to Australian women's fiction. Her latest novel, Daughter of Mine, is a little different from her previous work in the romance genre. It's a multi-generational story that explores family secrets and relationships And I spent some time with Fiona talking about what this book is about, her inspiration for the story, and some of the challenges of writing a much longer book than an average romance novel. We then segue into reader expectations when they pick up a book, and the importance to an author of knowing and meeting the promise of genre fiction. Fiona's next novel, Birthright, will be out early in 2018. You can find information on all the books we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 42. I think the first time we met, you had just won the double award for Boomerang Bride. Did that significantly change what you were writing and how you were writing? It didn't change necessarily what I was writing. It changed how I was perceived in the community and it it meant that I had agents and editors more likely to read my work than before. And I've noticed that in the recent years, your work has developed into longer single titles and I think with your new book you're branching out into a more general fiction type of story was that a natural progression just out of sort of what you've been interested in writing more of yeah Boomerang Bride was the first time I I felt a need to write a, a bigger book I started off writing category romance mostly because Mills and Boone I'd heard a radio interview and they said that they were actively acquiring books and so I wrote one but after I'd written about eight I felt the need to write a bigger story and so I stretched writing muscles and uh, which surprised me I when I first sold that had never occurred to me fast forward a bit further and I'd written six single titles and uh, I had an idea for this bigger book a multi-generational novel about women I wrote it on spec and uh, it turned out to be a lot longer than I'd ever envisaged. (laughs) Is it uh, significantly different to write a multi-generational longer book than it is to write a category romance? Oh, absolutely. A category romance, you're only concentrating on one couple. But in Daughter of Mine, I have Edwina, who's 65, 
and she's the mother of three adult daughters and then they have daughters as well. And so it's written from four points of view and I actually couldn't keep the whole book in my head. So for the first time I had to write copious notes and then if family got in the way and life got in the way and I didn't write for a couple of weeks, I had to go back and reread what I had written. And when I was getting toward the end of this book, that would take me two and a half to three days to read. Uh, it originally went in 148,000 words and we edited it down to 143. So it's basically 500 pages of book. So that's about three Mills and Boone novels worth, right? Yes. About 55,000 yes. words per category? Yeah, it would be. So that's a it significant achievement. Yeah. Yeah, well, in the middle of that, I suppose by the end of the Wedding Fever series, um, I think Runaway Groom came in at about 110. So um, I had, yeah, I'd done it before. This was just yet another jump. And if you had asked me at the start of this book how long it would be, I probably would have said 100,000 words. But it turns out when you're telling four people's stories, they need a lot more airplay than you ever imagined. And so this book concentrates on the viewpoints of women. That's right. Is that something that you consciously set out to do or is it that just you just have a more natural affinity to the female perspective? All my romance single titles have always been both male and female point of view. But this this book is very much about women. And th there's men in their lives, there's men in the book, absolutely. But I wrote it from the um, points of view of the women because their stories were the biggest story. And so what are some of the themes that you... you explore in this book? Well, one of the first ones is sisters, so uh, their relationship. It's very much ordinal position, so we have the overachieving firstborn and we have the secondborn who was four or five years younger but she rebelled against everything that her sister had wanted. And then there's the baby of the family who arrived really believing that mum and dad were perhaps completely over-parenting by then and she pretty much raised herself. And there's a big gap between, so the two older sisters sort of band together at times against the younger sister. But with all that, they're very concerned about their their younger sister. Harriet and Zara live completely different lives. So we have the perfectionist and then we have Zara's married to a sheep farmer. She's a disabled daughter. She has twin, eight-year-old twin boys and life on the farm. And Harriet believes that her life, she's a surgeon in the town, she's married to the mayor, she has an 18-year-old daughter who is going to do medicine like her and follow in the family footsteps. And, and she believes she's worked very hard and so that her perfect life is, she earned it. She deserves it and she earned it. And we've all met people like Harriet. <laughs> and the younger sister? The younger sister is a teacher and um, she was in a relationship and she um, had a stillbirth. The relationship has fallen apart. So this is interesting because as you're describing these characters to me, I get echoes of character types from your previous books. So well, I think when you write about women, you're always going to be writing about emotional connections and women's lives. So you, you write about relationships, you write about marriage, you write about everything that we experience with parenting and death. And so I just feel that it's an extension of that because I didn't have to focus purely on a romantic relationship. I could explore things a bit more broadly. So with this book, Daughter of Mine, what new things did you discover as you were writing the book, either about yourself or about your characters? Oh, goodness. 
I looked at what we believe about ourselves. So when we, when we grow up in a family, we have certain beliefs based on who we believe our parents are and how we fit into the family. And I completely turned that on its head by discovering that, that the mother had had another life before she married their father. I don't want to go into it too much. Basically, Daughter of Mine has got five big secrets in it that the first part of the book, all those secrets are revealed that turns every single person in the book's life upside down. And the second half of the book is the family coming to terms with that. And uh, some of them deal with it better than others. What was the spark of inspiration for Daughter of Mine? I was at my aunt's wedding. She was a widow. She was 70 years old and her husband had died five years prior and she'd been married at 20. So she had a long marriage and she married a man who had also lost his partner to cancer and they both had adult children and grandchildren and I sat at the wedding and I looked at my cousins and I looked at the children from the other side and not all of them were thrilled about this marriage and I thought there's got to be a book in here but that was just one seed for the book and I said it in the Western District which is full of establishment families and what does that mean establishment well if people from New South Wales know Barrel it's similar so these families can date themselves back to England in you know some back to the 1500s and they often they came to Van Diemen's land and then they ran out of land and so they came to Victoria with mobs of sheep they crossed the Moorable River and they squatted on this phenomenally fertile volcanic land and they made an awful lot of money and they built these huge houses that are still standing there today and so they became very influential in their small towns and the streets in the town today are named after them. They're still, although most of them aren't on the land anymore, some are, they still wield a lot of power and prestige. And they're the establishment families like in England. So they still play a significant part. And I thought, well, what if you could track your family right back to the 1500s and know exactly who you are and know that your family has played a big philanthropic role and they've been parliamentarians. How does that affect you and how you feel about yourself and how you see yourself? And that's Harriet. Harriet knows exactly who she is. She and has a legacy to She has to. a legacy and her father was a doctor and grandpa was a member of parliament and a grazier and she's a surgeon and surgeons in themselves wield quite a bit of power in their own domain and she's a woman and she's married to the mayor and she's they are she's the popular girl she was the popular girl at school and she's the popular girl in town and then I do something to her that suddenly she's not the popular person anymore poor Harriet I put her through the mill I put and as I've had a couple of readers say to me that woman you just want to hate her and then but you can't because she's also good and we've all met people like that is there a thread of romance that runs through the book? Absolutely. Georgie, the youngest, who's had a very torrid time, I introduce her to the lovely Ben. And they have their own ups and downs, but I can guarantee you that they have happy endings. So is there one sister that you relate to more than the others? I'm the baby of the family and I'm married to a baby of the family and um, nothing's expected of you. You're always told what to do to the point of you're even instructed and given recipes of what to bring to family functions. So I guess 
I did relate to Georgie <laughs> very well. And the bit about Georgie raising herself is pretty much my husband. He was, he was 12 years the youngest and he pretty much brought himself up. So this book has just come out, yes? Yes, it's um, 1st of March. What's next for you? What's in your pipeline? I'm currently writing Birthright, the working title, and it's also a family novel, but the themes are of inheritance. Inheritance? Inheritance. And I have done a lot of uh, research and I have to tell you the stories people have told me will make your hair stand on end in, of what, what families sense? do to each other over money. Oh. This is about a wealthy family and I, I'm exploring elder abuse, I'm exploring sibling relationships and I have to tell you that how we relate to each other as adult siblings is absolutely embedded in what happened to us when we were growing up. Yesterday I was in a panel that you were on and we got to talking about the promise of genre fiction and how in each genre there's a different promise. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think it actually came up, you were asking about why people get so upset about books in comparison to um, more literary fiction. It was about a question, there was a question about polarising readers and, uh, and I said that part of the role of the book is to polarise readers. And right, because there's nothing worse than a bland book that you sort of forget as soon as you finish reading it. But you were mentioning that genre readers are more likely to get up in arms about a book in comparison with um, other types of readers. And I speculated that perhaps genre, definitely romance, has a promise. And it is my experience in life, not through writing so much, but working in healthcare, that people get most upset when their expectations aren't met. And so with a romance, I can do anything within the covers of a medical romance. There's a lot of freedom in medical romance, but I absolutely have to guarantee a happy ending. And it can't be an ambiguous happy ending. It has to be very defined so that that reader knows that they're going to make it and they're going to be happy. I wonder if, if that's the reason why these sorts of polarising books and these discussions tend to blow up a little bit more in broader genres and in categories like and I don't mean category romance but like literary categories so young adult is actually just a category it's not a specific genre but obviously the readers have some expectations of what it means to write a young adult novel novel and what it means to be a reader and what a young adult book brings to the reader um, but then how difficult is it as an author to write that book if the promise of the category or genre you're writing in is not as clear as in romance. Like in romance, you know the promise is there's a, a love story and a happy ending. In science fiction, the promise is a little bit, um, I, I wouldn't say flexible, but it, it's a little bit broader. So it just has to have a scientific kind of tableau. Um, in young adult, young adult in itself is just ages of protagonists, but the clearly is some expectation about what kinds of books belong in that universe. I think also young adult readers, they are young. <laughs> uh, well, that's but, true. Uh, and they're very passionate. But I think if you have, um, the thing about being a reader is you want to walk the path, take the same journey as the character. So if you have an expectation that, that they will get their happy ever after or it will be 
even if it isn't a happy ever after, it will be fair that whatever turmoil they've gone through, it is going to be fair. Because life in general isn't fair. Bad things happen to good people. And I think they don't want that in a book. If it's an escape fiction, they want... Some sort of justice. Yes, absolutely. And justice is really important because we don't always get justice in life. We don't. So, but it's an expectation. So if they think something's going to happen and then the author blows it up at the end and it doesn't happen, you do get cross. I, I remember reading a Maeve Binchley novel and I was pregnant and I was on holidays and it was a big book and, and I was really enjoying it. And the premise was huge and the plot was complicated and I was like, wow, how is she going to finish this? You know, how's it all going to work out? And she didn't work it out at all. She burnt the castle down. She sent the guy back to Ireland. And I was like, what? (laughs) So I had committed to 600 pages. I basically almost threw that book far enough to land on the top of the pinnacles (laughs) in the Grampians. And I never picked up another book because she'd taken me to all sorts of different places and I expected it to be resolved and it ended up being real life. Everyone was miserable and everyone went back to their life that they had before and no one had learned a thing. And I was cross. And I was thinking about the promise this morning. Now, for instance, I was at a function and all these men were talking about Lee Charles and Jack Reacher and rah, rah, rah. So I decided that I would buy my husband a Lee Charles Jack Reacher book and hadn't done any research. So I was at Big W, plucked a <laughs> Jack Reacher off the shelf, gave it to him, said, everyone's talking about this. So he sat, sat down and he was all for the promise that this was going to be a great read and he's reading it. And it was a middle, like, I don't know what number it was. It was certainly not number one. It was right in the middle of the range. And he gets all the way through it and Jack Reacher dies. And he's going, what? There's another book. There's a whole series. We didn't realise that Lee Childs has a different age, Jack Reacher, every time, that he always dies at the end of the book, apparently. And then they start another book. So my husband will never pick another one up. And I'm sure it's because of the expectation and the promise. And it wasn't me. That's a really weird promise. Yeah, but that's what he's done, apparently. Yeah. Well, it's kind of clever, but only if you know. That exactly. And because as a brand new reader with not knowing anything and I just had been, you know, some guy had raved on for about 20 minutes at a cocktail party about okay, how Not taking his recommendations again. Well, you know, maybe you should have said, oh, and by the way, he dies at the end of every book and then he starts again at a different age. You'd know. But yeah, I can't convince my husband. So we also had a chat about the difference between literary fiction and genre fiction. So talk us through the difference in terms of the promise. Well, I made that as a hypothesis to you yesterday. I have to confess, I'm not, I mean, I read romance and I read general fiction. I'm not really a sci-fi reader or, I mean, or a fantasy reader. I was just hypothesizing that Perhaps in genre fiction there is a promise where there's absolutely no promise in literary fiction. You can pick up a literary novel and it can start and finish at virtually the same place. You can have 400 pages and not necessarily a lot has happened. And people don't have epiphanies and people don't have to have a character arc. And that's why personally I I find them frustrating because I want a story. I want beautifully written books with a story. And so this gets me into all sorts of strife at book group once a month. <laughs> and I, it's absolutely fine to have unlikable characters, but within a book, I like to see some change. But then you see in real life, 
people don't necessarily have change. You know, they, they're not reflective. But yes, sometimes I, I think that the literary books and you, you, you feel really weighed down by them um, and there's not necessarily a story. But you know, you read for different, people read for different things. I, I really just like a story. I know, me too. And I like to be satisfied at the end. I can deal with, doesn't have to be happy and I don't have to absolutely be, I mean in romance, absolutely. I, I'm reading romance because I'm busy, life is, I just want to escape for a little bit. That's my go-to read, of course I want a happy ending. And I'm addicted to that because my mother gave me a copy of Pride and Prejudice at 14 and I started reading it and I went, oh my God, it's so boring. And she said, keep going. I can still remember being at Wilson's Prom, reading my mother's leather-bound MLC school prize with the tissue paper pages and getting to the end and just going, oh. And that's why I read romance for that. Oh, but I also read a whole lot of other things and I'm fine if it is a bit doom and gloom. But if you need to pick me up, then you get that promise. And that is why people get upset because I think they will read that book in a particular mood because they need that promise. And if they don't get it, then you do feel let down. It's really about expectations. Absolutely, and it doesn't matter whether it's reading or whether you have an expectation about a social function or whatever. It's when our expectations aren't met, and especially our expectations in family, which is what Birthright and Daughter of Mine is all about. When they're not met, you get angry, you get upset, and you get stressed, and you're not happy. So. And finally, what books are you reading and enjoying right now? <gasps> right now. Oh, goodness. You should have given me notice. <laughs> you can take your time. You can edit this. It's fine. Well, I belong to a book group. So we just did A Little Life, which was 785 pages of child sexual abuse. Oh. But that was, that was a rugged read. But in that, it was beautifully written. And I have just finished reading The Nest by Cynthia Dupree-Sweeney, which is set in New York, which was fun because I've just finished being visiting New York. And I'm currently, because I've been invited to Hamilton for part of my book tour... I was about to ask you about Hamilton. <laughs> I'm going to Hamilton and doing a talk. They've invited me to uh, attend their book group before my library talk, and so I'm currently reading Father Bob the larrikin priest oh okay he used to do shows with john saffron on the radio that is correct i yeah. i learned all about that actually he's from south day. melbourne isn't he he is yeah. indeed yes yeah. so i'm listening to that on audiobook okay have you met father bob no and i'm not catholic and i now need to go and do some research on vatican ii because this features a lot and i vaguely <laughs> oh remember God. as a child vatican ii because the people across the road that I used to play with were Catholic and I, I you know, I heard some stuff. So I do need to do a little bit of research. But then I used to work in community health. So I'm always aware of the foundation and all the work that he had done with homeless youth. So it's been, it's an interesting, it's interesting. So career. going back to Hamilton, how did you, I'm so, I don't know, like. <laughs> Why am I doing I'm so jealous. Oh, <laughs> of Hamilton? Yes. So you're going to see Hamilton? Is that what I heard? Okay. You are thinking of Hamilton the musical. I am thinking and of I Hamilton. And I am talking musical. about Hamilton, a small town in Victoria. Oh my gosh. Because you said <laughs> you New York and then oh, Hamilton. Oh, right. Yeah. I, sorry. Well, I recently had a holiday in New York and we did see a lot of Broadway shows. And my 18 year old son, who is the all singing, all dancing, passionate musical boy, 
put in for the Hamilton the lottery? lottery nine times, <laughs> but um, didn't get in. It's pretty tough. Yeah. So, no, sorry, I'm not going to see Hamilton. <laughs> I'm going to Hamilton, small town. So where is Hamilton? Is that in It's in the Western District, yes. So I have a library tour visiting uh, half a dozen towns in the Western District because the book's set there. So and I'm going to Mount Gambier and Warrnambool and Hamilton. Do you do a lot of um, book appearances and tours in rural Australia? This is the first time I've done it. Okay. Because, yeah, because this book is uh, just a little bit different. I mean, I couldn't have written Daughter of Mine without having written the romances that I have done, but it's not purely a romance. Do you so. think you'll go back to writing Oh, romances? I have a medical romance due in Oh, so July. you're still writing uh, I've been sort of doing, categories? I've been doing one category a year. The reason I wrote Boomerang Bride was because I was feeling a little bit confined by, I'd written six medicals and I just really felt like I wanted to break out and do something different. That meant I was actually happier. I came back and I wrote another couple of medicals and I really enjoyed it and I've bounced between the single title romances and the um, categories very happily. I need, my brain obviously needs to shake it up and so then with this bigger book was again another, well you never say never. Mills and Boone are still inviting me to write for them, I'm not going to say no. And medicals are very popular in Australia I've heard. And France. And France. If only we could get the royalty because translations you get a significantly reduced royalty rate but if I could get the rate that I get here in France I'd be wonderful yeah I think you know the French are hypochondriacs (laughs) well actually that is the first time someone has given me a reason that makes sense as to why the French might love the medicals well I don't know Australians really like them too and well you know as a nurse and you know, in the 80s, we used to gather in the nursing home, the nurse's home, sorry, where we used to live on a Tuesday or Thursday night because we all had to watch The Flying Doctors. Well, I think that there is that fascination with The Flying Doctors, but also I think because there are a lot of women who work in, in the medical field and in health professions. And so, you know, it's nice to actually, I don't know, do people who work in the health professions read medicals? Or yes, they-, they do. And we watch the television shows because we want to make the diagnosis before it becomes... <laughs> so it's like a mis- it's Absolutely. Like a crime fiction, but for Absolutely. medical Absolutely. So you watch it and, you know, you watch whatever, whether it be something as crazy as Scrubs, which I love because Scrubs was the drama. It had heart and it had comedy. And basically, if you work in healthcare, you lurch from outrageously funny, hysterical things to absolute tragedy and you can do it in a heartbeat and Scrub did that really well. But you what whether it's country practice or ER or whatever, you watch it. And even the great Australian show that I fell in love with, Doctor Doctor, that was just on last year. Yeah, you sit there and you listen to all the things and then you go, ah, it's that. What about House? Because House is centred around medical mysteries. Yes, that's right. I didn't watch a lot of House. I missed that one. But it's the same thing. You just like to work it out. And now I have a med student son and he's, um, yeah, we, it's a quiz thing as much as anything. That is all we have time for in this episode. Huge thanks to our, as always, amazing audio producer, Rudy Bremer, who, by the way, thought it was absolutely hilarious that I got Hamilton the Town confused with Hamilton the Musical. And this is very obvious because she refused to cut that part out of this episode. You can find the show notes at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. Just click on episode 42. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can send me a tweet at bookthingo 
or send an email to podcast at bookthingo.com.au. If you enjoy the show, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review on iTunes if you can. Each rating and review helps iTunes recommend the show to other listeners searching for podcasts about romance books. You can also visit bookthingo.com.au to check out reviews and opinions from a bunch of readers from Down Under, including me and Rudy. In the next episode, as a very special celebration of International Podcast Day, I will be joining Kat on the Book Thingo podcast to talk about our favourite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to the Book Thingo podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. In the meantime, I hope you have a fabulous fortnight or week of reading. <laughs>